All right, buddy, this is Scoots, and I want to give a shout-out to uh, Ellen and Fitz, just in case they're listening, my friends Ellen and Fitz, who introduced me to Chris Mancini, who uh, makes the podcast The Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood. And I may have talked about this in the intro, but I'm recording this uh, out of order. It's a sleep podcast. It's a chill podcast. Uh, the Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood that Chris makes. And this is going to be a tribute episode, similar in a way to Vast Horizon. I'm going to turn things over to Agatha because you can't keep Agatha off the podcast, I guess. And she's really good at these episodes where she's taking someone else's writing and storytelling and putting it in, in, in a different context. But So then you could also listen to the original version uh, in your podcast app of choice, The Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood, or there'll be links in the show notes that you could just use to be a little bit, bit, bit easier. But I want to thank Chris uh, for letting us use his writing here and uh, create an episode out of it. So it should be pretty fun. So without further ado, oh, who's Agatha? Agatha was a character. She, she's, a, she's a professional storyteller. or She runs a class uh, in another world. Back a long time ago, we had a couple series called, um, what are they called? After the Glass Slipper. They were about Cinderella's life after the Glass Slipper, but they're really about the life of her stepmother, Agatha. And Agatha is just, we've, we've always kept in touch. We've become, you know, across the universes, become really close friends. Currently, Agatha is a, a teacher and a sentient pit of lentils who teaches class. She lives in a, like a swimming pool. And that, that this is, that's very important for any of this. But I know people, you say, well, who's Agatha? I said, well, let me try to answer that in the next five hours. Uh, but really, so she teaches a class or co-teaches actually a class uh, about uh, the myths of her world. So she's big on these. When I say, well, I, tell, I say, hey, I got a myth. Uh, oh, which, which, uh, which of the great books is it from? And I said, Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood. Oh, wow. So here, here without further ado, here's uh, Agatha. Uh, she, she, she may refer to you as children, even though, you know, you know, she means it in a, she's used to teaching children, but she also talks to me like a child. So what do you, you know, and I say, well, you, don't you work for me technically? So without further ado, here's Agatha, the storyteller. Oh, thank you. Hell, hell. Hello, 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 everyone. This is Agatha, your friend, your teacher, and I, and uh, hopefully I tell this tale uh, from the quiet journeys of Professor Atwood with uh, great aplomb. And I've listened to the show a few times. I really enjoy it. I use it to relax. Uh, Scooter has to. He said. He, I said. Can I take your phone? Or a phone like, he says, no, you can't take my phone into another world. It would disrupt time-space. And this tale does have some time-space mentions. So anyway, this is, uh, and we'll see how many episodes we get in here. But this is from the podcast, uh, The Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood, Episode 5, Hiking into the Forest. And this is where Jonathan travels to Alaska's Songus National Forest, uh, Tongus uh, National Forest, which is the fourth biggest forest uh, with 26,256 square miles in total area. Oh, I forgot uh, you don't believe, even in my world, even 
Did you know even gnomes use a metric system in my world? Gnomes, uh, orcs, and orgs both use the metric system. Anyway, welcome back. Okay, this is episode five, and I'm speaking as your friend Professor Atwood and Jonathan as their narrator, and I, we're just getting started. Now, you may have noticed our adventures don't always have consistent lengths, and that's true. And that's really just the nature of adventuring. Some will be shorter, some will be longer. It's not really up to me so much. It's about what's in store for me. And let's be honest, who among us really knows what's waiting? So many good things and so many positive surprises. And, I mean, we could talk time travel and visiting the future, but then you have paradoxes and... That's what you say. What if the scooter even told me that joke? I got it. What is a pair of uh, what is a pair of suburban dad? What do you call a pair of pants on suburban dads? Uh, paradoxes. Not anymore, though. Scooter said. Now it's a pair. Anyway, oh, so time-related things. You know, the inclement time weather. And I've hinted about this earlier. Nothing's predictable. Even if you could see into the future, which you're seeing is a possible future that could alter just by you observing it. Like that movie with the heroes. Uh, I snuck, I, I learned how to stream. I come from my world, a world of castles and horses and carriages. Uh, and they, they like that Paul Rudd. No one asks me in my world, Agatha, who's your favorite movie star? And I say, well, I prefer someone that's a star of television and film, Paul Rudd. And they say, right, like mud? And I say, well, yes, I love mud. I love Paul Rudd, but he's great. Uh, he's a, he was in a time heist. That's why I thought of it. He's also, you know, heisted my heart. Uh, though I would, I, if anyone could love a woman who is a sentient pit of lentils, uh, I wonder if it could be Paul Rudd. In another world that he's not a part of. That okay? I got to get back to the story, though. We've got uncertainty, time variance, principles, uh, fluidity, linear nature. You got to take that stuff with a grain of salt. Science assault. Uh, uh, if you get too bogged down in the mechanics, you risk losing the bigger picture. Time is like one of those magic eye paintings that was popular a while back. You can only see the whole thing if you look at it from a specific angle and a specific distance. And sometimes, no matter how hard people try, they can never see it. Sometimes it's more important to peer into the present to, to really see what's going on in front of you. Which is what we'll be, I'll be looking for on this next journey. So take a step back, broaden your perspective, and when you're dealing with the present... You always want to make sure you can see the time forest for the time trees. Now, speaking of trees, I thought I'd go on a solo hike for my next journey. Like I said before, sometimes it's great to have your own crew. Sometimes you get to meet a new crew, like I, Professor Atwood, boarded Captain Flynn's boat. And sometimes you just go it alone. Professor Brad, well, Bradley was going on vacation, so the timing worked out. Uh, now, what does a lab explorer's assistant do? Where, 
Do I, does the lab explorer's assistant go on vacation? I mean, you know, when your job's, you know, to go to places that are very interesting or prepare someone else for those places, where do you go to relax? Well, Bradley likes those all-inclusive resorts, uh, and I don't blame him. You know, the less planning he has to do, the better. That's his job. Uh, It's interesting that most of these resorts plan all these activities for you, and he likes to have the option but mostly he just wants to go somewhere and have the option of doing things and choose not to do them. And I get that. Uh, also, there was no pending experiments, and all of the plants were hibernating. So there was nothing for him to take care of. I told him to have a great time and to take lots of, lots of pictures of him not doing anything. But he said that taking pictures was doing something, so he couldn't guarantee it all that Bradley. He remind you know that reminds me of another the, the, the person because you know I, I, then Scooter started letting me watch movies with him, and I thought it was funny that the, the man who portrays he's he, he's he's some sort of a Norwegian god or something. Oh boy, is he oh boy, but uh, he called a raccoon, a rabbit, and that was a gag in two or three movies, which I found every time I laughed, and Scooter laughed too. Uh, But uh, the man who played, so it took a while, because this is why I'm not supposed to come to your world and do these things, these electronic things. Don't worry. I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody in my world anything about it, uh, except Paul Rudd and Thor. Uh, but what was my point? Oh, Bradley. So I said, uh, that raccoon is from a, it's not a human from a human world. Uh, and Scooter said, no. And then he said, a CGI. And I said, what's you saying? And then he explained, and eventually he introduced me to another Bradley. Oh boy, Bradley Cooper. And no one believes, so I was again with some of Scooter's family, and I said, did you know Bradley Cooper's that voice? And they said, no, it's not. Uh, and I said, yes, it is. Uh, and that's, that's a, so that got me banned from your world for a while, because it was a heated disagreement. Okay, back to our story, though. But before Bradley left, he had prepared everything for my journey, and I was going for a hike, not just any hike. I was going to Alaska's Songus National Forest. The Songus is the nation's largest national forest and covers most of southeast Alaska. It's bordered by the Pacific Ocean on the west uh, and the coast mountains on the Canadian border on the east and spans 500 miles of southeast Alaska. It is the largest intact temperate rainforest in the world. Now, coastal temperate rainforests are very rare, at least, of course, like I said before, like the ones you know about. uh, They only occur in about six places outside of Alaska. And the vast majority of Alaska's coastal temperate rainforests are old growth, which means exactly how it sounds. It consists of western hemlock, Sitka spruce mountain hemlock, and Alaska yellow cedar. 
Alaska, yellow cedar, mature coastal temperate rainforests are extraordinarily complex and stable habitats. Uh, over thousands of years, many wildlife species have evolved to exploit this habitat. Habitats are uh, interesting how I say that, uh, but in, understanding the complexity of this habitat uh, is only now beginning to be understood and much more scientific study is needed. It's not really my thing, Professor Atwood, of course, I'm speaking as, but I have have some colleagues studying it. But I doubt I'll run into any of them without a helicopter. And I promised myself this was one hike where I would not bring the helicopter. Now, at roughly the size of West Virginia, Songus National Forest is also the net largest national forest in the U.S. In a home to approximately 70,000 people living in 32 communities, uh, including the state capital, capital Juno. Now, the first peoples have uh, continuously inhabited the Songus for more than 10,000 years. Uh, residing with salmon, bears, wolves, eagles, and whales. Uh, living from the land is still a way of life there, kind of a tradition and necessity since there's plenty of fish and wildlife in the region. Well, not all year round, but as much as I like hiking, chances are you won't find me in Alaska in the middle of the winter. Now, I knew the train... Terrain, some of the terrain would be unforgiving. But I wanted to make sure I brought everything I needed. So I up, I, oh, a saddle, Bradley and I upgraded my satellite phone for emergencies. I, I wonder if I, Professor Atwood, I could borrow that. Uh, so I wouldn't have a, because then I wouldn't have a trouble getting a signal. I would also be using, bringing the usual hiking and camping gear backpack. Phone, GPS, rope, analog, compass. This is like a, a compass. Is like part, one half of the of the Podman. Uh, the not the first half. Uh, maps, books on lore about the forest, food, water, first aid kits, repelling of uh, forest friends, a small portable power source, a few changes of clothes, and my portable mandolin. Ooh, I could hear the strings playing for me right now. What's great is it sounds like an actual mandolin, but through remarkable acoustic engineering, it is the size of a small ukulele or ukulele. I think those are both correct. So I was ready to go and I flew into the Ketchikan airport and now that in of itself was a bit unexpected because you'd think the Ketchikan airport would be in Ketchikan, but it isn't. It's on another island and you have to take a ferry from the airport to get to Ketchikan. Once there, I took a crisp, clean breath full of mountain air and just soaked it in as the water gently broke against the docks. The town was amazing. It's so beautiful. Almost like a coastal Italian town. 
You have a port, the city, beautiful trees and mountains all crammed lovingly into the same space. Like everything is trying to be in the picture you're about to take and get crammed in there. It was just what I was hoping for. This is very relaxing. Even telling this story is relaxing me. The town itself has great food. I don't think it's called the salmon capital of the world for nothing. The problem is I don't like salmon. I know by now you're thinking Professor Atwood is quite a picky eater. You should try having a diet when you're a sentient pit of lentils. Uh, it really restricts your dietary. Actually, I, I don't even I, I'm self-sustaining, which is even that just confuses me as well. Now, this is not that was me th- speaking, not Professor Atwood. Uh, but I will say this as Professor Atwood is a picky eater. When you find something that's truly great, you enjoy it all the more. Like when I was in the UK and they served me fish and chips. So while I passed on the salmon, I had some crab cakes for dinner and it turned out just fine. And then after dinner, I was not ready to turn in. So I went down to Creek Street and stopped in a club that had live music. It was jazz night and I was worried about sitting in. But then I saw somebody brought a washboard, so I didn't feel odd about it at all. Normally, they don't let washboards and mandolin players sit in. But they seemed to make an exception for me. And my new washboard friend, Benny. Oh, I like that. That reminds me of Benny the, Benny the Cab uh, or Benny and the Jets. Benny and this washboard. Benny and their washboard, actually, Agatha. Was, uh, he was actually pretty good. We did a lot of riffing long into the evening in the jazz trio Running Cog. Running Cod were very magnanimous. So I can't say I'm a professional like they were. Turns out Benny was, though. He was a studio washboard player, and he was just there on vacation. And I was ready to head back to the hotel, but Benny suggested we go to the Midnight Lumberjack Show. Turns out there's an actual lumberjack show in Ketchikan. But there's an underground show at midnight just for locals, but Benny said he could get me in there, you know. You can't explore without trying new things, so I said, sure. So we went through a hidden door at the back of a local tavern and entered a really large room with a pile of sawdust spread out at the center. Now I, as Professor Atwood, but as Agatha, am learning every day, am familiar with traditional lumberjack competitions with axes and log rolling and log sawing, log climbing. A lot of things to do with logs, basically. But I didn't see anything like that set up here. In fact, there wasn't even one log in the room. But the big competitors soon arrived and the crowd cheered. A few people gave Benny and I some subtle, annoyed glances, knowing I was an outsider. But Benny assured everyone I was cool. Now, it turns out there was only two competitions for the underground lumberjack show, and the first was making flapjacks. 
two stoves were wheeled out, and the two competitors, after donning hanets, uh, got ready to face one another. Now, I didn't catch the names, so I just referred to them as Big Beard and Little Beard. Now, Big Beard definitely understood flapjacks. Now, just as a side about flapjacks, this is Professor Atwood, not Agatha. They've been around for centuries, uh, 30,000 years ago, possibly during the Stone Age. They may have even found pancakes in the stomach of Otzi, the ice person. And that's 5,300 years ago, which is not easy to figure out. Uh, but I guess you could make educated guesses. Uh, now, in ancient Greece and Rome, pancakes were made from wheat flour, olive oil, honey, and milk with curdy poos. Ancient Greek poets Socrates and Magnes wrote about pancakes in their poetry. Can you imagine being so infatuated with a food you write poetry about it? Oh, pancake, oh, pancake, I'd like to taste you. Or, you know, in, but uh, Scooter won't let me come to his place to have them. Boo-hoo. He says I'm from a world uh, where pancakes don't exist. Uh, but then I taught the ogres and the orgs to make them. Tisk tisk. But also I'm a sentient pit of lentils, so I don't really eat a lot of pancakes. Okay. Also, Scooter doesn't like, he said, why you got to sit on my couch? Uh, and he said, let me put a blanket down first. He says that after I leave, you know, people, well, he says he rarely has guests anyway, but even people delivering something will say, what is that smell? Uh, reminds me a bit of pea soup. Okay, back to the story, though. Well, as, as Professor Edward, you know, I'm a picky eater, so most I would do is a haiku, but I'd have to be pretty inspired. Now, the name pancake started in the 15th century, but became standard in the 19th century of America. Uh, Johnny Cakes, Journey Cakes, Buckwheat Cakes, Griddle Cakes, Flapjacks. Early American pancakes were made with buckwheat or cornmeal. Thomas Jefferson loved them so much he sent a recipe to his hometown from the White House. But back to this competition. Big Beard was flipping his cakes with the knowledge of a flapjack historian. But Little Beard was still mixing his batter. One tip I learned, don't overmix the batter. Uh, soon both were on the griddle and uh, competition was heating up, uh, so to speak, and there was many mix-in options. Blueberries, uh, chocolate chips, all with different point values. I wonder if there was like a triple sow cow or a Lutz uh, for panca you know, pancake competition version of that. So while the judges were do it, do doing their judging, both contestants were still... Oh, wait, no, I missed a thing here. Uh, Benny told me that last week someone made a crepe and they were disqualified, but it was so delicious that they said, you're only disqualified for a month. Now, Big Beard seemed like he was in the lead, but Little Beard was not to be, you know, defeated. Like maybe he had a trick up his sleeve. And soon the pancakes were plated and served to the judges. And while the judges did their judging, both contestants went back to the griddles to keep cooking. Ooh, this is nice. They made enough flapjacks for everyone. 
which uh, was a house courtesy of attending the underground lumberjack show. And if, you know, if I, Professor Atwood, hadn't had such a great dinner earlier, then my, my mouth would have been watering because the flapjacks smelled so good. But I declined as I was full. Now, Benny was not, and he devoured his uh, flapjacks, bananas, almonds, and blackberries. And when the judges announced the winner, it was an upset, and Little Beard had won. Turns out Little Beard had taken his time to get just the right ratio of cornmeal in his flapjack uh, to make a buttermilk Johnny Cake hybrid. But I, So I took one of those to eat later, uh, and I felt like this was almost historic, uh, like I wouldn't want to miss it, like I, I didn't want to just pass on the pancakes. And, uh, you know, I like pancakes, but I don't even think this hybrid pancake is going to make me write haikus. We'll see. And then it was time for the second competition, and it was a true honest-to-goodness dance-off. And one person was dressed as a fuzzy friend. Uh, Now, obviously, you know, people say, do you have good peripheral vision when you're in the dancing suit? Uh, A dancing furry suit. uh, And uh, also, if you're going to be on the dance floor with someone else, you say, do you really have good peripheral vision? You're sharing the dance floor with another dancer. And believe it or not, if you run a dance club, these are the kind of things you need to be aware of and create ordinances around. So this was like a dance. So the first person... Uh, The first requirement was to do a dance called the backpack. Uh, I think that's how they warm up. Uh, And uh, so we got ready for it. We got ready to watch it. And it was, again, the same competitors, Big Beard versus Little Beard uh, versus, oh, so three dancers uh, versus someone dancing in a furry, fun, fun friend outfits. A big beard and little beard had taken off the flannel and suspenders, uh, and uh, really got. Uh, well, they put on sunscreen. Interesting. I guess uh, to make the dam- because they were going to shine like a diamond in the sky, shine bright like a diamond. Uh, uh, this is another reason. Uh, so, so, okay, so this is why I went second, obviously, because you don't want anybody cooking after they've been slathered in sunscreen. You see, my pancakes uh, smell like coconut, but taste like, uh, something. Okay, so they were good dancers, so both Big Beard and Little Beard. But as the, 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 you know, they have those shows, Scooter won't let me watch them, uh, The Secret Singer... And, you know, the, 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 the dancer in disguise, uh, I've brought those, those are the ones I call it in my world. If you, so at one time I dressed up an ogre as a turtle and that was who won. Well, of course I'm the only judge, uh, but anyway, the, the dancing was going on and on and on. It was very good and people were clapping and cheering and it went on for a long time, and everyone was getting tired. But then, you know, someone would pull out a new move or a new genre, or the DJ would go from a DJ to a live band. And uh, it seemed like Big Beard had a little bit more energy. 
and a little bit got tired, maybe from focusing on the cooking too much. Uh, and Big Beard just kept on dancing with a, with joy. Uh, and even the furry dancer got tired out. Uh, and Big Beard won. And uh, by then, Benny and I were just tired from the competition. And we said our goodbyes, wished each other well. He had to get on a flight uh, to head back uh, for a famous studio session with someone. And I had to get onto my hike. So I went to bed, I closed my eyes, and I got comfortable. I listened to some more of the adventures of, uh, the quiet adventures of Professor Adwood to, to fall asleep, uh, which, you know, it was relaxing. Uh, and then I drifted off, and the next day I woke up, and I was ready to go. Ready to head into the Songus National Forest, uh, I did not have to go far because it was right there. Because if something is 16.7 million acres, there's plenty of places to explore. Now, I knew I needed to go where I needed to go. So I got started and I checked my GPS uh, to make sure I was on track. And I do want to say one thing about exploring and camping. Uh, You know, have a buddy. Make sure you got a buddy. You know, I'm Professor Atwood, but if you're you're heading out there, you know, you also want to have uh, redundant communications, uh, a way to get in touch with Bradley if you need to. I mean, I was I had a plan, like I had a check-in system for me uh, because it was my GPS phone and satellite phone and Bradley. But I have a backup, you know, so you say, hey, okay, if, you know, I'll talk to you at 2 p.m. But you could always bring someone, you know, I'm Professor Atwood, so I'm Professor, you know, I always have my professor part of me, my day, you know, daytime professor, evening professor, and, you know, not a professor, all parts of me. But bring a friend, you know, then you have someone to talk to. I'm talking to you, of course. You could even bring a four-legged friend along, like a puppy poo. I don't think you should bring a cat unless you're going to carry them the whole time. And then what if they get sick of you and they say, well, I want to go for, you know, then you could, uh, so don't bring a cat unless you have like a tree fort. So this is some sort of place. Uh, I don't know if they could have a tree house for cats. And you say, well, this is where you drop your cat off when it's sick of being, you know, when you're hiking, but your cat's had enough of you. But one time I encountered someone who, uh, had a dog, but no shirt. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, that's interesting. You don't have a shirt at all, or you're just walking around shirtless. Uh, and they said, hey, yo, man, it's, uh, it's, it's time to blaze. You know, it's 4-1. And I said, oh, interesting, interesting. Okay, then. I'm confused, uh, but uh, you seem mixed up, too. So I walked slowly into the forest, and I started on a well-worn trail. And, you know, I walked step by step, foot after foot. Uh, I had good ankle coverage uh, and good socks, too. Those are, uh, uh, the, you know, those are very important things uh, to have uh, when you're in the forest. You know, socks uh, that wick your moisture away. 
And also one of the things I like about hiking is saying, oh boy, are these dogs barking when I take my shoes out of my boots. Uh, and when I'm alone, it can't bother anyone, you know. I can just say it to myself and laugh. Another thing to remember, you know, I started going in these lesser-known trails is to be respectful and, and to, to think about that as you're walking and, and to say, okay, and is there anything else I can need to do outside of my hike? Uh, and, you know, one of the things I did was, uh, you know, as Professor Atwood, I have solar-powered portable air conditioners that I've distributed in the area. Uh, but it, anyway, just going off topic here, as I walked deeper into the forest, the tree canopy above me got thicker. So I knew I was leaving the modern world behind. Now, this is not the same as an Amazonian rainforest. Uh, with it, uh, the sounds are not the same. They're not, they don't have the same level of intensity where it sounds like life is teeming in every square inch. Uh, here in Alaska, everyone and everything, you know, there's a little bit more space, a little bit more quiet. Uh, I felt the gentle breeze with a hint of coolness to it, and I heard birds chirp overhead, and little forest friends scurrying around, looking at me, saying, Oh, oh is that a professor walking? A deer was having a snack and looked up at me and just looked me over, but went back uh, looking for salt, I believe, uh, to lick. That's one thing I've learned as Professor Atwood is that deer don't like uh, human-made salt licks. Uh, uh, Or at least we never see deer using them. So I don't know if that's because, you know, if they if they do use them, though. I've seen them, but maybe they just don't want to, they, they like, appreciate the effort. Uh, do you feel like, uh, they, you know, that's the natural, this is the natural habitat looking for salt. It's not a big deal. And, you know, they have to get ready for winter and other forest friends. Uh, But this was my favorite part of the hiking. The forest got quiet, uh, but not silent, just turned down. I could sense I was alone in a way that let my chest open up. It let my muscles go loose. I was on the path less traveled. Now, I never really told you where in the forest I was headed. But here's the thing, I may have hinted at the destination, but we're going to have a little surprise poo You'll know when I get there, I assure you. But for now, let's keep peering into the present. I crossed many streams filled with salmon and began to climb a steep mountain. I found the path I was looking for and soon was at the top, and the view was incredible. It was almost 200 feet above sea level, and the air was the crisp and cleanest I've ever breathed. And I breathed a lot of air. My whole, my whole life I breathed air, this, uh, but at various elevations. I mean, you also have the obvious reasons why the air was so good. I was miles from anything human-made, from factories and those things. 
But many people forget that the air we breathe all over the world, most of it comes from forests like these. Plants release, uh, release oxygen into the atmosphere and absorb carbon dioxide. Now, this process is called photosynthesis. And I'm sure you're aware of that because maybe you learned it in school. Maybe not, though. Plants, algae, and other friends use the sun's energy to create organic matter. Photosynthesis, photosynthetic life uh, forms use light energy to transform carbon dioxide and water into sugar and oxygen. This is why plants and algae are crucial to Earth's biosphere, because I feel like I'm on a ride at Epcot Center right now. I'm loving this. Uh, 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 the song is, uh, attraction, because they regulate the atmosphere's Earth ocean, oxygen content. Uh, Agatha's having trouble talking. Uh, now, thankfully, the plants and trees don't seem to mind doing this. So think of a forest as an oxygen air factory. The closer you are to the source, the better it smells. Kind of like a Maine lobster in Maine. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's still a, 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 a friend swimming around. You're going to enjoy it to some degree either way. So I'm standing on top of the mountain in the middle of this natural air factory, and I let my lungs slowly fill with something special. The pure air, the pure breeze, and now the beautiful view all give me a deep sense of comfort and serenity. And the beautiful view gave me a deep sense of comfort. I sat there for hours, taking it all in, even watched the sunset. The colors of the sunset over the forest are different than watching it over the ocean. But they are both something to behold. And as you can imagine, the forest sunset has a bit more earth tones, but both are warm and soothing. Now, after sunset, it was time to make camp. Normally, you'd have your camp set up before the sun went down. But, you know, since me, you know, Professor Atwood, scientist and explorer, I'm not always the best at roughing it. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's necessary. But when it isn't necessary, it's when you choose to do it. But I, sometimes I choose not to do it, which is what I normally do. So I had had uh, my campsite airlifted in about two hours ago while I was enjoying the sunset uh, with my drone friends and GPS and uh, air traffic control at Ketchikan. You know, Steve and Bill, they know the drill. And, uh, you know, when anything I need when I'm going to spelunk or even the team. Uh, but tonight it was an inflatable climate-controlled tent biodegradable fire pits, and a chef-prepared meal of fresh salmon cakes, uh, which asked the chef was appropriate because uh, the term baked Alaska was a, a, once upon a time. But they had offered it as a dessert when I ordered it uh, with extra meringue. It was coined at Antoine, Antoine's, uh, a restaurant at first, it was first coined at a restaurant called Antoine's in New Orleans, Louisiana, by Chef Antoine in uh, 1867. Uh, to honor the acquisition of uh, 
Alaska. Uh, but he said he, it was just a dessert. He shouldn't, I shouldn't offer, read, read too much in it. He also offered creme brulee as a substitute, but I went with the baked Alaska. And after dinner, I sat up and read for a bit in the light of my custom fire pit, uh, adjusted the flame and played my portable mandolin freestyle. There's something about playing a mandolin in the middle of a force that really makes you feel like you're back in time. I felt like I was camping out in an enchanted forest full of mystery. But uh, I knew I wasn't, but I still felt like it. It felt good, and I felt the music, and maybe even the forest felt it too. Like some connected memory from an earlier time and place. Uh, the trees, maybe a jester traveling through this area. And the rest of his the party said, Jester, get out and play the mandolin here. I also set up a salt lake for the deer because I like an audience. Uh, and I was hoping the deer would come for the salt lake out of courtesy. Even though I know, like I said, that they're ambivalent to salt, human salt licks and string instruments. It also helped me give a chance to view the wildlife without getting out of my hydraulic camping chair. But only a few deer came, which was disappointing. Probably the rest had made up an excuse not to come by for my salt lick or my performance. So I closed my performance with a song I was working on about a castle floating in the sky over a rainbow. But I always get stuck trying to justify the blue, the light being reflect, refracted by the water droplets to form the rainbow and how that would hold up the castle. And after I finished, the few deer that were there uh, gave me a nod in a satisfied way and trotted into the woods. And I was getting pretty tired and knew it was time to turn off the fire pit and get some rest. Now, the tent itself was going to keep me warm. I did not need a sleeping bag or a blanket because it was climate-controlled and came with an inflatable bed right in the floor. I know this might sound like Professor Atwood does not like communing with nature, but I use the technology as a part of it. Uh, I love being outside and I love nature, but I also like to sleep well. Now, the next morning I set out to do what I had traveled to do, visit a glacier up close. More specifically, a special glacier that was different from all the others now. Continental ice sheets have shaped the landscape of southeastern Alaska over millions of years. The slow-moving ice carved deep fjords and created mountain summits and transported sediment and debris onto the landscape, so the glaciers really did shape Alaska. Many of the Songus glaciers uh, empty into glacial lakes or rivers uh, flowing from under the ice until it eventually reaches the sea ice breaking off from the glaciers and crashing into the sea is called calving, calving, calving. Glaciers that calve directly into the sea are known as tidewater glaciers. And there's a lot of glaciers in Songus National Forest, but I wasn't looking for one in particular. First, you could get to it by land, somewhere only accessible by boat. The glacier I wanted was South Sawyer Glacier, but it's further east. Uh, 
You know, there's mountain goats that make a lot of noise on South South Soya Glacier. Uh, so they sound like they're irritated with the glacier. And I made it to the glacier I was looking for. It was a smaller glacier that no one else seemed to bother with. And I got up on the face of it and I felt like I was looking in a giant icy mirror reflecting my image back at me. And at the same time, I felt like the world was also be re- being reflected in that ice, uh, where we've been, where we're going. Time slowed down. Even the reflection seemed to shimmer with a slower passage of time. I'd found what I was looking for. I'd found the sole glacier of Songus National Forest, uh, steeped in history and mysticism. No one's quite sure how it worked. I mean, some have theories. Uh, Glacier ice appears blue when it has become free of bubbles, and years of compression make the ice denser over time, forcing out tiny air pockets between crystals. And when the glacier ice becomes dense, the ice absorbs an amount of red light, leaving a bluish tint in the reflected light, which is what we see. When the glacier appears white, that usually means there are tiny air bubbles still in the ice. And my theory is every air bubble may contain a soulful memory or insight. Uh, So anyone who's been here, from the First Nations people to tourists, uh, can't seem to quite get enough of it. Maybe this glacier stores these and mixes them together over thousands of years in millions of bubbles. The Soul Glacier is like a spiritual supercomputer, for lack of a better term. Maybe it peers into you and finds a memory and makes a copy to store in its ice air bubble matrix, uh, and hopefully gives you an insight in return. Or maybe not. I mean, maybe it's murky. It's possible it's just reflecting its enchanting icing, icy facade for you to pick your own insights. Uh, But as I stared into that icy wall, I saw many shimmering colors and many reflections. Some of me and some of another place. It was a small glacier. But when you're steering deep into it, it looks like it could go on forever. And inside, it really seems to do just that. As I stared into the glacier and my reflection at the same time, a sense of peace washed over me, saying... The glacier saying, I see you, but in a kind way, like a parent to a child. I mean, maybe I felt a little bit condescended, but the glacier's been around a lot longer than I have. Uh, I saw myself, and for the, like, for like most people, I saw, you know, that I wasn't perfect. Uh, I'd made mistakes, uh, things I would have done differently. Like maybe I should have worked at NASA after I got that PhD instead of exploring. Maybe I could have had my rocket propulsion system ready to go faster, but water under the science bridge, I suppose. But when you look at yourself, you have to see the whole package, and the Soul Glacier is pretty insistent about that. I saw the good and the bad, the achievements and the setbacks, and the successful experiments and the not-so-successful ones. The glacier wanted me to see it all, and I did, and I got my insight, which was this. When you look in the mirror, there's always room for improvement, so respect that and take it to heart.
But at the same time, be generous and know that knowledge and improvement are lifelong pursuits. No one has ever done early with seeking knowledge and improvements. And I have to say, I was tired after that. And to make things more interesting, it had just started to snow, which was unusual for this time of year. I have a feeling my moment with the glacier had something to do with it. Uh, but it was always a good time to be prepared. So Bradley had my exit team planned right by to pick me up. Uh, and I was surprised, but glad I did not have to work to get back. I took a sled uh, back to Ketchikan. And I have to say, it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. Not everyone got along. Uh, and we saw rabbits, and then some of our friends chased the rabbits. But soon I was back in Ketchikan, and I made the ferry back to the airport, and it was time to go home. And when I got home, there was a CD, a compact disc, waiting in the mail for me from Benny. He had sent me his washboard solo CD. It sounded pretty good. I can see why he's in demand. I sat down in my recliner thinking about where I'd just been. I mostly thought about the glacier and what I had seen. Not just what was inside, but what it had reflected back at me, giving me a gentle reminder. Like, here you are, right here and now, and this is who you are at this very moment. And I think that stuck with me the most. The trip home gave me more time to think and to get some clarity on what the soul glacier was trying to show me. Mirrors reflect us in a more manufactured way. So uh, when nature makes a mirror, it reflects something deeper. It's something to pay attention to. It tells us to look deeper at our reflection, that it's in our nature to be curious, to explore and to learn, and then with that knowledge to be a better person. I got it, and I was grateful for the journey and grateful for the insight. Uh, thanks, everyone, and keep exploring. Good night uh, from Agatha and from Professor Atwood and, of course, Bradley for all, you know, Bradley and, oh, and Paul, Paul Rudd, too. Uh, good night.